Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner. This is your host, Mary Trace, and I am here, but my lovely co-host, Valana, is not here for this conversation, but she is here for this introduction. So, Valana, say hello. Hi. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, I uh, have... Um, Heard about David Jaffe from my colleagues for a long time, and I'm so thrilled he was able to come on. And I was sorry Valana wasn't here, but I was very happy to have David um, come and talk to us at How to Ruin Dinner about um, his work as a uh, political scientist and a sociologist. He sort of explains his um, path to um, his varied career um, and varied t- topics. He talks about himself as an autodictat, that, that he is always interested in expanding his area of expertise and encourages all of us to do the same. So that is interesting to hear his story, Valana, mm-hmm. because it's not a kind of typical uh, political um, or, or academic, excuse me, a uh, typical academic uh, path in many ways. Um, The other thing we, we, so we talk about his career and his pursuits, and we talk about um, politics in Florida as well, um, and the way in which politics in Florida um, points us towards the need for political involvement Mm. and his own work, right, um, in the field um, that ch- seeks to do what he he calls public sociology. Okay, and that's motivating people to get involved. And I think it's m- even more than that. I don't think it's activism in that way, but mm-hmm. I think what it tries to do is take his work to the public. Oh, so um, that he is writing books and articles for the public as much as he is for. The academy, so kind of with the goal of keeping the public informed. Yes, but the, yeah. or yeah, and putting his work where it can perhaps be most useful. I think that's really interesting. This idea of kind of bringing the public into the discussions that we have as academics. Right? Yeah, because and, they're often left out. Right, and this is what um, we seems to be coming up over and over mm-hmm. again in this semester's conversations about. Um, Unveiling or tearing back the the veil of um, secrecy or privacy or privacy yeah. or um, maybe even superiority yeah. that tends to overshadow some of these institutions like the courts or the academy. And so David is interested in bringing his work to the public. And engaging in that way, so it it really is a very interesting kind of approach. Of course, <laughs> in that we talk about DeSantis, mm-hmm. um, the governor of the great state of Florida, <laughs> and um, David is uh, you know very skeptical about the way in which government has involved itself under the DeSantis. Um, administration with universities and education in general. So we get to we get to talk about that um, 
quite a lot. You know what, what's happening in education, um, and this idea again that keeps coming up around um, indoctrination mm-hmm. and the the kind of uh, w- willful um, mischaracterization of the exploration of ideas as indoctrination. That 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 distortion really undermines and mischaracterizes what we are doing. I mean, we're really doing the opposite, right? We're trying to do the opposite. We're trying to kind of liberate people from maybe being stuck in one view of the world. Yeah. And at the same time, um, acknowledge that there is a, an ideological uh, majority. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that exists um, and that it it is incumbent on all of us to think past our ideological um, set points. Maybe. Yeah. And to at least entertain the ideas of others as valid and. Yeah. In their own right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I do get called a corporate dem again. No. Over the course of this conversation, I think I call myself a corporate <laughs> dem, actually, but it's implied. And so, you know, you can, you can, listener, judge for yourself whether or not that's what I am. <laughs> but um, David is pushing us to think really hard about ways in which we are engaging uh, with ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And the way we're being asked to engage with ideas. So I, th- I think this was a very, very interesting conversation. And it was quite a lot of fun, I have to say. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I'm, You're making me feel really bad. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry you missed it because it was really very fun. And I, I hope we'll have David back mm. um, so you get to talk again. And maybe we'll see um, if he can wrap up our semester's conversations and because there's a lot we didn't get to talk about primarily we didn't get to talk about his role as an administrator Mm. so one of the many jobs he's had over the course of his time here at UNF is that he was an administrator for 10 years and we didn't even touch on that so we'll definitely have to have him back. We will, especially now that we're saying it here. Yes, right. We're making a promise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, that's what you have to look forward to. As always, thank you for listening. And thank you to Andy Rush and Shelby who help us yes. with this podcast and putting it together and give us this wonderful uh, box, this oxygenless box to yeah. <laughs> talk and speak in and 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 record in so thank you andy and shelby and um, thank you listener we would really love to hear any ideas and comments you have yes please yeah send them our way all right i'm here with david jaffe who we are so thrilled to have i say we but my co-host falana did not come in today because she has a cold so luckily we are she isn't passing on those germs because, David, you just told me you're getting over it. Yeah. So we're happy to have you. I'm very happy to have you. And we're going to be talking a lot today about what's going on um, in Florida, it feels like. Uh, from our pre-conversation, we're going to be talking about some of the things that De- DeSantis is doing um, in 
regards to higher education. But first, how about you introduce yourself and tell us about the arc of your career and your education? That would be great. Okay. Thank you very much for having me, Mary. So um, my name is David Jaffe. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of North Florida. Uh, I've been at the university since 2000. I arrived as a an, as an administrator uh, in 2000 and did that for uh, about 10 years. Then I returned full-time to the faculty, voluntarily, I'll add, <laughs> uh, and happily. And um, I've been teaching and writing and uh, working on different research pro- projects uh, since then. I'll talk about some of those. But in terms of my biographical trajectory, uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Uh, I went to a public high school. Uh, I became engaged in uh, politics and sort of radical thinking about politics at a relatively early age in high school. Uh, the Vietnam War was the single significant factor that energized me uh, politically. And um, I had a deep interest in politics, even in high school. Uh, I campaigned for uh, George McGovern, uh, who uh, won one state, by the way. I just want to point that out. He did win one state. Uh, He won uh, Massachusetts, or what people like to call the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Uh, In any case, um, I knew I wanted to go further to study politics. I went to the University of Florida. Uh, I majored in political science. I had a great experience there. Uh, I thought I would get a PhD in political science. Uh, I went off to Washington University, St. Louis, which had a very good political science department at that time, at least well-known and highly ranked. Uh, But I realized, based on the areas of specialization at Washington University, St. Louis, political science department, uh, it was rational choice theory and mathematical modeling. Uh, These were not my interests in the social sciences, so I realized Uh, I belonged in sociology, and I spent much of my time there, even though I got a master's in political science, working with sociology faculty. I then left and went to University of Massachusetts Amherst, a beautiful, beautiful part of the state of Massachusetts, had a wonderful experience there as a graduate student, got my PhD uh, in sociology there. Uh, My first uh, position, teaching position, was in the State University of New York, at New Paltz. Most people have never heard of New Paltz. Some people have never heard of the State University of New York. Some people don't even know what SUNY means. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that was uh, one of the colleges in the State University of New York system. I was there for 15 years. I had a good experience there. Uh, my areas of sociology uh, are uh, economic sociology, uh, political economy, uh, work and organizations. Uh, I've written stuff on higher education, um, and most of my work has moved from topic to topic and issue to issue. I've never concentrated in one single area uh, throughout my career, and that actually has kept me uh, interested uh, and energized uh, because I've moved into a few areas that might be tangentially related to maybe political economy or economic sociology, uh, but were not necessarily uh, areas I was well-versed in. Uh, so, for example, when I returned to the faculty here in 2010, I launched something called the Ports Project, uh, which was an examination of uh, the port economy, logistics, uh, labor, warehouse labor, um, longshore worker labor, 
uh, the movement of goods uh, in Jacksonville at that time. There was a lot of hype around expanding Jacksport as the economic engine for uh, Jacksonville. Uh, I was skeptical about that, and I started studying it and writing up pieces. And I was actually involved probably for five or six years um, working on that project and publishing pieces that um, were designed for what we call public sociology. So public sociology is uh, sociological research and writing that is not devoted exclusively to an academic journal for a narrow number of uh, fellow sociologists, but the idea is to take what you're studying, uh, writing, um, analyzing, and share it with the public so it has some impact on their lives and on policymaking. Um, so I was involved in a long debate about deepening uh, the St. John's River, uh, dredging, blasting. Um, and at some point, I got tired of that, like I do of most things. And I decided to shift into some other areas of inquiry. And a couple years ago, uh, I launched the Jack's Rental Housing Project. That is what I'm working on now. And I've just released a report about that, uh, which is getting some attention. And so, um, you know, before I went into the Ports Project, I didn't know anything about logistics. Uh, I didn't know anything about ports. I didn't know anything about containers. Uh, but I immersed myself in that literature uh, for six months, and that was really gratifying. That's just what I like to do. And housing, yeah, I knew some things about housing, but it wasn't. I'm not a housing expert. Uh, but I got myself up to speed quickly. So uh, my point would be, if there are students listening, uh, you can become an expert uh, in almost any area if you practice what I call autodidactism, <laughs> and that is self-learning. And um, you don't need to take a class. doesn't hurt. Um, but there's certainly resources available for you to access that would allow you to bring yourself up to speed and become essentially uh, an expert on, on any topic. Uh, so I encourage my students to practice autodidactism. I hope I stimulate their interest in a topic, and then they will go out and dig up everything they can find uh, to become proficient so they can talk about it and write about it. So that's a little bit. Uh, on my background, it extended. Discourse. So we we can talk about anything. It sounds like we, yes, you, you'll yes, you'll we, jump in no, no matter no, what. I have an opinion about uh, just about anything. Uh, just to maybe work backwards through some of that. Um, sure. If, if you're saying that for students you can learn anything and be an expert in anything, what about methodology? It is it essential to have a method? Do you approach all your topics? In the, with a similar method, and is that worth their time figuring out what how they learn best and ways professionals generally approach information so that they can then be auto-methodologists, <laughs> meaning that yeah. they can learn what's out there and ways to adjust their own thinking. I, I teach a critical thinking class, so... That's always of interest to me, just the method. What you think is up to you. Okay. But in some ways, how you think, it's helpful to be able to explain how you reach your conclusions, and having a method is part of that. Right. Well, that's a great question. And actually, that does introduce the importance of, you know, the, the question of methodology, right, because students may skip over that, and they'll just compile lots of information, and the idea is, well, how are they going to organize it? Uh, or how are they going to analyze it? And uh, there are different methods. Obviously, um, in English, uh, you know, there are different kinds of methods than there are in the social sciences, for example. 
uh, although I think there should be more overlap between them, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so one can develop those methodology, methodological skills, I think, in coursework, right, uh, and then sort of take that and go out, right, and, and study what they want to study um, in depth. Uh, in a way that it's not going to be provided in any kind of a class. Uh, the other thing I always encourage just trying to keep us in business here, right? Yeah, that yeah. We're, we're teaching, no, no, uh, especially yeah. at, a, at an introductory <laughs> level, that method always seems a little pedantic maybe and tedious. Yeah, right, but it's right. so um, crucial to learning yes, how to think. Right. No, that's – well, look, I teach a course in uh, social science data analysis. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there you, know, you go. It's, it's the, you know, the methods of you analyzing – You've got to come up with a sexier title. Quantitative data. Okay. Well, uh, sex rock and the data analysis. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, I always tell students that, you know, they should try to um, – See how other people are doing these things. In other words, you can you can learn a lot. Just I mean, you can develop writing skill. Again, I don't want to put you out of a job. You can develop good writing skill by doing a lot of reading from different kinds of authors and developing a style. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you can model uh, what you're doing after people that have established themselves uh, in terms of publishing. And I think uh, one can learn some things about method methodology that way. But I think your question about methodology is is important because uh, one can go out and, uh, as I said, compile information, but how you're going to organize it and analyze it is is, is important. Um, and of course, you don't want to just do this. I mean, it says auto, so it's by yourself, uh, but you want to do this in a more um, interactive way, right? You want to share what you're doing with other people to get their feedback and to try to get yourself more focused. So, um, Anyway, that's a little bit about autodidactism. Yeah. Well, let's let's move to that question, uh, and I'm very interested in your public work um, and the role of the university. And um, we're seeing in Florida, DeSantis drag the drag the university in some ways, kicking and screaming, into a kind of public dialogue. And I would like to frame this in a positive way, um, <laughs> because it's so easy yeah. to be critical, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what DeSant- how DeSantos is challenging. <laughs> Notice that word. It's, yeah. it's positive. Right. Um, education at all levels. And I think for, for many of us who are teachers, we're skeptical in part because it feels like political pandering rather than – or that's an easy way to sort of think – Mm-hmm. That it's it's not a challenge, but but rather a suppressive uh, <laughs> idea. I'm trying to be polite here, but um, I wonder if you can talk about how he's doing. And as a previous administrator, what what the administration is, you know, going to have to respond to, and how it can defend both its faculty and meet the challenges that DeSantis is laying okay. before us. Man, there's a lot to say there. I know. All right. That's Sorry. good. Thank you. It opens up a lot for me to talk about. And I've given a lot of thought to uh, all of these questions. Um, in terms of, you know, p- what I call public sociology, um, to some extent that would be discouraged uh, by, I think, DeSantis's, uh, you know, challenge to uh, higher education. 
Uh, he because he talks about activism, mm-hmm. and he doesn't think that we should be engaging uh, in uh, pedagogy that in any way might uh, stimulate, generate, or encourage uh, activism or student activism. And you know, public sociology is a form of scholarly activism. That's the way I would put it. And public sociology is a is a recognized. Area of of sociology. It's a movement in sociology, and it's a, a very positive movement, in my view. Uh, and, and actually, many very conservative people uh, tend to, when I describe public sociology, they say, "Yeah, you know, I mean, get out of the ivory tower. You know, I mean, share what you're doing. I mean, if you're going to be spending time doing all this research, you know, don't confine confine the results to a narrow number of people. Share the stuff. Let the public see it. Let them re- react to it. And ideally, it should be relevant, and it should have some a significant impact. So, um, and of course, for DeSantis, you know, he has, obviously, when he talks about activism, he's talking about a particular kind of activism, right? Uh, so if people in the business school are engaged in some kind of research that uh, assists local businesses in enhancing their profit margins, I doubt he would describe that as activism. So all of this is is very selective. And I often bring up the business school because when we talk about uh, intellectual diversity and those sorts of things. Uh, no one ever talks about the conformity around certain ways of thinking uh, in economics and in business schools. Uh, it's usually targeted toward the humanities and the social sciences primarily. Now, you know, what is motivating all this? Um, I do think uh, one part of it is uh, uh, part of the culture war uh, where you're going after what is sometimes an easy target, because I think there is a significant constituency for a criticism of professors uh, and universities. Uh, many of these people who sort of buy into this criticism, on the other hand, uh, tell their children that they must, under you know all circumstances, make sure they go to a university and get a college degree. So there's always been this kind of ambivalence in, in American culture about um, uh, Education, uh, you know, there, there's kind of an anti-intellectual strain on the one hand, but on the other hand, this kind of uh, respect for people that have degrees or encouraging everybody to get a degree. So there's that kind of thing. So, so I think he's he's using this in the most extreme, extreme way, uh, far beyond in an unprecedented way, as far as I'm concerned, um, in a McCarthyite kind of way in the state of Florida. And I think people need to realize this is not normal. Okay, Um, and I think administrators need to learn that. We can say more about the administrators in a moment. I think there's another aspect to this that is a little more maybe interesting, and that is I do think there's a fear among uh, the elite. I'll just call them the elite. There's other terms I sometimes use. Uh, You know, I use like the capitalist class or those guys. But I think there is a fear among the elite uh, that the younger generation uh, has not bought into the uh, myths of American exceptionalism. And there's a lot of reasons for that to be the case. A lot of it has to do with simply they have access to information. Uh, they can test the claims that are made against the information that they, uh, you know, compile. Uh, they, they also are experiencing things. So like the millennial generation, uh, here you have the most highly educated generation in history, and they're the most economically insecure. So, you know, there's sort of a questioning of the system, Right. This is the last thing that uh, elites want, yeah. Can I just roll back a a second so you can clarify for me? And I'll go back to your introduction um, where you talk about being motivated by Vietnam. And I would say 
our generation. We're now the old folks in in the society. And it seems to me that we've seen this surge of uh, an older kind of vision for America come back to the forefront so that our generation was motivated by things like the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. and They would be, you know, more socially liberal ideas. And then with the rise of Trump and that idea of make America great again, it was a throwback to, I would think, my father's generation, you know, this idea of an America that was exceptional right after World War II, you know, that feeling that we could conquer all before we lost in Vietnam and that debacle and just his. So how, how, where is this nostalgia? With whom is this nostalgia for a time that is now, you know, 70, 80 years old? Where, Who's most susceptible to that nostalgia? And you're, are you saying that millennials are most susceptible to it? No. I mean, DeSantis, is is he a millennial? He's close, right? <laughs> yeah, he's maybe on the edge. He's on the edge. Uh, I find Gen that, X. <laughs> you know, the, it's yeah. just the cyclical nature of right. ideas that right. should be contradicted in some way by yeah. all the accessible information. So, you know, like who's who's – this yeah. attractive right, to. Right. I think millennials, uh, I don't think they're necessarily driven by a nostalgia for the past. I think the baby boomers are. Um, and the interesting thing about the baby boomers, and I mention this in my classes because we always talk about generational change uh, and, you know, how one generation has certain attitudes that are different than another generation, what the political implications of that are. And I tell them, I say, look, you know, in the 60s and 70s, I'm a baby boomer. And it was anti-establishment, counterculture, anti-war, um, uh, you know, fr- free expression, <clears throat> free speech, use of chemicals and drugs. And um, but look at the baby boomers today. I mean, <laughs> these are not people who are anti-establishment or counterculture. Uh, they're at the heart of the most conservative elements in the country, which means that. What you are when you're young is not what you are when you're yeah, older. That's the, um, and I find it extremely depressing uh, that baby boomers uh, are large, you know, are largely involved in or you know commit to a kind of conservative political agenda. So I think that's uh, that's that's a pretty big problem. Now, the younger generation, I think, as I said, uh, they begin to realize that the system doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, they become a little more critical of what they've been maybe taught about the American system. Uh, I think the um, Gen Z, the current group we, ha- we have in our classes, the Zoomers, they call them, um, I think um, they also have been influenced by certain events and certainly by the Black Lives Matter, right? Yes. <clears throat> so I think there's a real concern by the elite uh, that these generations, particularly the youngest generation, uh, is potentially getting radicalized, right? And it's not radicalized necessarily by college professors, but simply by things that are going on. Um, Because, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement that raised a lot of consciousness amongst uh, the young. And uh, I think they have a different view of the way the system works, uh, the level of uh, inequality, exploitation, oppression, 
uh, police violence. Uh, they express this in my classes freely, okay? I don't have to elicit this kind of thing. Um, and so there's a real concern about this. And so where do you, if you're an elite and you're concerned about this, and of course, what political direction are these generations going to go? It's not the direction they want them to go. They certainly don't want them questioning the system. Um, where do you intervene? Well, you try to intervene in the educational system. And I think in Florida, we see sort of the most extreme um, reactionary response to the awakening. <clears throat> the awakening. Okay, we can use the word yeah. woke. Yeah. I, and I can, yeah, say more. I, I can say more about what that means to the students because I actually asked them. I have some data here. Um, but there, you know, there was, there was some surveys done several years ago. And they asked younger generations, largely millennials, uh, what's your opinion of different political economic systems? They asked them about socialism. And like a majority of students had a favorable view of socialism. Uh, This was shocking to the elite. Okay, this is a great concern of theirs. Now, the thing is, you know, what what do the students mean when they say they have a favorable view of socialism? You know, where do they get this from? It's not from any deep understanding of the political economy, socialism, I think it's actually an unintended consequence of conservative attacks on policies that they label uh, socialism. So example, if somebody says, we should have free health care, and somebody says, well, that's socialism. Uh, We should have free tuition. Uh, Well, that's socialism. Uh, We should have uh, access to a low cost or free housing. That's socialism. Well, after a while, the students probably think, or the younger generation probably thinks, well, you know, if that's socialism, <laughs> you know, it sounds pretty good to me. I mean, Bernie did, a, a, yeah. Bernie Sanders and, and Bernie was did the same huge thing. in bringing socialism exactly. um, to the forefront, I think, and, and motivating young people <sighs> and putting it out right. there, which was incredible yeah. to see that switch, especially back kind of to make my point back to an older guy you know here's this this white-haired grumpy looking guy sitting on the podium at at the inaugural is just the essential picture of bernie just gruff in his mittens and new england and you know had huge appeal huge appeal to to a younger generation to the young people so and you know this was not any kind of radical uh uh socialism Uh, it's democratic socialism uh, a lot of what, um, you know, is labeled socialism now by conservatives are fundamental sort of economic rights and policies that were promoted um, toward the end of the uh, Roosevelt administration. Um, so the Democratic Party has largely uh, abandoned uh, that legacy. Now, Starting took, it, with, would you, put, would you put that at Clinton's feet? Yes, I would yeah. put it definitely. Well, a little bit at Carter. Uh, but full-scale Clinton. Uh, so when we talk about neoliberalism, which I talk about in all my classes, by the way, to the point where the students are probably saying, Jeff, if you say neoliberalism one more time, <laughs> I'm going to shoot myself. Um, and I talk about, it, you know, everyone says Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Well, it was really Clinton uh, that normalized um, uh, neoliberalism uh, in the political system of the United States. And now, you know, it's basically a, a bipartisan uh, agreement. Um, and, and, you know, much of what's happened to baby boomers uh, is a direct result of uh, the restructuring of the economy, a neoliberalism. Particularly, I'm talking about baby boomers that did not get a college degree, 
that segment of the population actually uh, was identified by a couple economists, um, Ann Case and Angus Deaton. Uh, and you may have heard this, this the term that they came up with, but they realized that the mortality rates were going down for everybody. Uh, but uh, white uh, Americans are 45 to like 60. You know, what the hell is going on here, right? Um, they thought things would be better for them. They had really high expectations. They expected to be economically secure. They expected to have a retirement. They didn't expect to be downwardly mobile. And they start killing themselves, right? And that's what they looked at. So the mortality rates were due to poisonings, uh, overdoses, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, alcoholism, and just plain suicide, you know, direct suicides. They call this a deaths of despair. Um, and there's a book out by this. It's a, it's a great concept. So they weren't even interested in this particular topic, but they found this anomaly in the demographic mortality data. And they said, we have to look at this. And the more they looked at it, they realized that this particular segment of the population was really suffering in a lot of ways. Um, and what's interesting is they're not suffering as much as uh, black Americans uh, on average. They're not suffering as much as you know Hispanic Americans. Um, but their expectations were different, right? And their expectations were dashed. And then they want to think about, we have to go back to a time when things were different. The problem is they don't associate the heyday of American capitalism, which for me was, you know, I tell my students, let's say like the war ended in 45, 45 to maybe the mid-1970s. There was an entirely different political economic arrangement before neoliberalism. That was the source of the dynamism. But... People don't, when they look back, they don't associate the fact that times are hard now with the institutionalization of a new political economic arrangement, regime, neoliberalism, um, which was introduced, you know, basically in 1980. And if you look at all the data on things that, you know, income inequality, declining unions, all of these things after 1980, all of these things are happening at the same time. Um, and I'm teaching a social problems course now. And, so, you know, the students are like, well, every social problem is a result of neoliberalism. Uh, and, and basically what I tell them is you can't understand any social problem in the United States today without understanding political economy, um, which is, of course, one of my areas. Yeah. I, I mean, it, to follow along with that, what and, uh, you know, what would be my area of interest as a religious studies person um, is the role of, the, of myth and the myth of our exceptionalism. And when you talk about the despair and the mortality rate, the, it seems to me the myth of exceptionalism is incredibly destructive in that people feel that they are owed, um, you know, a, a progress as as opposed to understanding economics, but also evolution in general as adaptive rather than progressive. That yeah. That's an idea I feel like I have to hammer home all the right. time. Right. And the way in which, I mean, for, for, from, my, from my area, that mythology is a way of creating identity, but it also has uh, the power to distort reality. Yeah. And so when I think about that uh, exceptionalism and in terms of the way we view our lives as white Americans, there seemed, and I say white Americans because I think we've been the obvious beneficiaries of yeah. a lot of the economic uh, success 
right? That it's the way we think about what we are owed um, that is problematic as well. And and to get back to DeSantis and his concerns around education, I mean, particularly the way he talks about CRT and the the, the idea that we should not engender any feelings of guilt or shame um, in people, which which to me is the most ironic of all the reasons. Um, here's a tradition steeped in Judeo-Christianity <laughs> that, that serves guilt and shame up with breakfast. I mean, you get it with your mother's milk. I thought we were all about guilt and shame. <laughs> I thought that was our life's blood right. was guilt and shame. And what confession. are we doing? Turning away from it, right? It, restorative justice without... Uh, engaging with our past myths and the way in which they distort our our expectations seems really to be <laughs> to be un, um, inauthentic. How about if I say it that way? Because yeah. you're conveniently forgetting that aspect of what you claim is foundational for you, that these these ideas of justice and equality and forgiveness and repentance, right, all these great religious, spiritual things, right, that we're trying to engender. But, but you don't want to, you don't want to even touch on a guilt that may come from, have I misrepresented the importance of guilt and shame in his rejection of CRT? Uh yeah. Yes. I mean, I think, well, first of all, he doesn't know what CRT is. And well, as a sociologist, uh, I could say a lot about um, critical race theory. Well, yeah, I should have called it that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I could have. I mean, there's a lot of tenets, tenets of principles of a critical race. It's not really a coherent theory, um, but there are tenets of it that are fundamental to the way sociologists understand race. But going back to really your point about uh, exceptionalism and myth. Um, one thing I say to my students, because there's this idea that we are indoctr- indoctrinating our students, I think that's a part of the uh, rationale for the attack on the uh, institutions of higher education. Um, I tell them that uh, they've been indoctrinated <laughs> all their life, right? <clears throat> so the idea that you know somehow they're coming to us as blank slates uh, is idiotic. They, they've been indoctrinated from the minute they were born in different ways, but, you know, primarily through the educational system. Um, that's what educational systems do, okay? And I just tell s- students, you know, I know, you know, education was to provide you with the skills to make you a productive, but you know what? There's another part to it. There's a latent, we call it the latent function, and that is it indoctrinates you to be accepting of the system in which you live. And this isn't unique to the United States. It's done in all systems. So I tell them, you're, you're coming here uh, already indoctrinated. Uh, and, and much of the indoctrination involves myths. And a big part of the myth is American exceptionalism. And as sociologists, we debunk. Okay, that's what we do. <laughs> that's sort of a, one of the core missions of sociology. Now we try to debunk in different ways. We can do it theoretically. We can do it polemically. We can do it methodologically. Um, factually. Fact, yeah, that's what methodologically, yeah. right? I mean, we can basically say, you know, the claim that the U.S. is X, Y, and Z. Well, let's take a look at the data. And let's also compare the United States to, you know, other comparable Western, um, you know, democracies, industrial democracies. And, of course, 
then they see how exceptional we are. Unfortunately, it's not exceptional in a good way. Uh, it's exceptional in a bad way. So uh, cognitive dissonance might be one way to put it, right? Well, you're talking about this shame and this guilt. Cognitive dissonance is what students should be experiencing at the university. So, so what I tell them is I come up with this, you know, this fancy term. I say, so I'm going to give you um, counter-hegemonic education, <laughs> uh, which, which is what it is. Yeah. In other words, you know, there is sort of a dominant, uh, you know, uh, a dominant way of thinking about the American society, the American experience, the American system. Uh, and um, that means hegemonic. And I'm going to give you one that's counter-hegemonic. Uh, that challenges some of those. And, you know, I'm very upfront about all of this stuff in my classes. And the students seem okay with it. I mean, I think it, it's how you frame it, right? Because under these conditions, I'm a prime example. Um, I'm a, I mean, I'm a prime candidate for a faculty member who will be reported. There's no question about it. I have not really pulled back at all. Uh, but I do think if you frame things in a certain way, uh, you give students the opportunity to express themselves, no matter what their views are, which I do. Um, and you have a sense of humor, which I think is really important. Yeah. Um, it's well, okay, because they're not agreeing. They don't agree with everything I say. There's no way they do. But sometimes I think they just appreciate the fact that at least you have convictions uh, and you're not you know, unwilling to share them publicly in an open forum. Uh, where, you know, presumably the university is the free exchange of ideas, uh, or at least uh, it was at one time, um, certainly not in, at least, you know, direction we're moving. Um, well, I mean, the, the one of the, a couple of things you said there, um, this idea that the university is indoctrinating people that DeSantis seems to feel or to accuse us of is is borne out, I would say, in the way in which we've educated people up to the university. This kind of <laughs> passive learning yep, style. Right. Like I spend a lot of time teaching people how to engage with texts, right? Question the text. Really, when I teach New Testament or Old Testament, I spend a lot of time reading the text out loud so that we can stop after it. it it's the joke of the class. We, we end up stopping after almost every other sentence right. and not getting very far because the words have flown over us for so many generations that we no longer hear them. We're no longer really curious. We've, we've had, a, had an educational system that has produced these passive learners to accept facts and not engage with ideas. And, Curiosity is the first victim of that kind of education. So, you know, I think what he's reflecting in, in claiming that we're grooming and indoctrinating yeah. is an acceptance of an idea of education that shoves stuff, shoves information into the student. The student is supposed to somehow come away with facts and figures that allow him or her to, you know, function in the world. And so I feel like most of my time is spent unearthing that curious 
spark right. or, or right. seed that, that's been too deeply buried. Right. And then they don't know how to talk about these ideas. They sit and wait for somebody to, you know. Approve. Approve. Yeah. If part of it is just, I think, just sitting in a classroom is so passive, you know. Right. So there's a lot of ways in which I think his attitude, DeSantis's attitude, is a ref- is an accurate reflection of what education has become, and the ways in which we generate that experience as passive. And so, you know, we. Yeah. I think there's a lot. Interesting. I think there's a lot of criticism there that's valid, you know, and and understanding his point of view. And challenging it should be a challenge to ourselves, right? Right? Like, what are we doing here? You know, how do we generate ideas? And to your point, I mean, I unfortunately, when the introductory classes, I'm always telling them I'm going to lock our classroom door because I expect the shooter to come after the religious studies teachers <laughs> first. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, right. you deal with religion. It's in. It's for many people unexpected to challenge the standard narrative around what religion is and that right. how it functions yeah. and, and the what passions are deep there. And the passions are are deep. Yeah. So that you know, talking back to to what a myth is. I mean, I always teach it as a sacred story that has meaning for that community and is central to creating identity. And I think it works the exact same way in politics. And we've seen that with Trump and DeSantis, the way in which the political message is geared towards the creation of an identity rather than an imposition of law or ideas, because many times their calling card is going to go nowhere legally, right? right. It's not right. going to result in new laws. Right. Or, but they've accomplished their mission but they've, by but simply they've throwing created, it out there and yeah. you know, reinforcing and the identity. Everybody knows yeah. who they belong to right. and where, you know, who you are if you vote for – it's a shorthand for community and identity, Um and I think in many ways, politics has become a religion. And I accuse my atheist husband all the time of being more religious than anybody <laughs> I know because he's so rabid politically. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, we channel our energies in different ways. Yes. I line up with him, by the way. Yes. So that sort of thing. Um, well, you know, um, I teach a course in political sociology. Maybe we can discuss this in more detail in a future episode. But, you know, just – The two-party system, um, the way it's evolved over the last 30, 40 years, um, culture war on both sides uh, is essentially the name of the game. And identity politics on both sides. Identity politics tends to be associated with Democrats. Um, So um, I'd written this paper, uh, a class war is better than a culture war. Um, And the point is that we don't have parties that, you know, represent – class interests. Okay. In other words, they want to blur class interests. The two parties are both corporate parties, uh, and they're both largely dominated by corporate interests. Uh, you know, one can be a little more progressive and appeal to educated people, 
and the other can be a little more reactionary. Um, and obviously, uh, they need to focus on not their economic interests because then they wouldn't have any followers at all. They have to, uh, you know, promote certain kinds of social and cultural and what they call moral issues. And, um, you know, we only have two parties. So, you know, the Democrats are the only option to that. But the Democrats have largely given up on talking about a material uh, interest of working people. Uh, they play the uh, culture war game just like, you know, they benefit from it. It's kind of a codependency. Um, so so that we could we could go a long way yeah. in that direction. Well, my my but, nephews accuse me of being a corporate Democrat. So you okay, really you okay. really touched a nerve. Okay, okay but, good. Were I, they I, not I, calling me boomer? I don't know boomer? anything about you, but yeah. I think it's a good term to the, throw at uh, the old people. Well, well, the people would say blue, no matter what. Okay? Yeah, you know the Democrats are going to say they're going to love you, David. <laughs> Shout out to Xavier and Seamus. They're going to love you. All right, can't wait to meet them uh-huh. sometime. Well, that that. Um, Concern is, I think war is an interesting word to use here, and maybe we can shift a little bit to vocabulary because I do want to get to your conversation around wokeness. Yes. But, I mean, war is the ultimate generator of us versus them, and then you have to pick your side and you have to be dedicated to it. So I think we should— pay attention to the psychological manipulation that is going on in declaring war, right? On <laughs> it, It's so cheap. Yeah. It's such a cheap strategy. It, it, it's such a standard way that Americans attack any issue, yeah. right? It's like the war on drugs, the yeah. war on poverty, the war on terrorism. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, we live in a violent society, so it's not really a surprise that we would use those metaphors. Now, when I say a culture war... Uh, well, I'll think more about that that term now that you mentioned it. I'll just a uh, class struggle, okay. yeah, versus I think, versus cultural. Well, I I mean I'm back to so, something with ideas. Are we yeah. talking about ideas? Like, let's yeah. let's put it in terms right. of these ideas and economic realities. I, I, to me, what has been interesting is um, the way in which we're manipulated to act outside of our own real interests, tangible interests. And that's in part because of the kind of dust cloud that's created by all this culture wrangling. I mean, when you think about LGBTQIA, if I've gotten all the letters there, (laughs) I hope um, if you're when we're thinking about those ideas, so often none of it is applicable to anyone except the person, the individual who is engaging in that challenge. So for the rest of us to hold opinions about their experience of life is is, is just this dust cloud, you know, it's the right. pig pin dust cloud. You, you get to rage about something that never touches you. Abortion functions that way, too. Right. I mean, you've got all these people on the Supreme Court who are never going to get pregnant. And, and, you know, I know it's their job to, to make laws and make <laughs> decisions, but a little humility in stepping back from concepts and ideas that don't, you're never going to be the carrier of. You're never going to bear the burden of. Seems to me to be worth thinking about. Like, 
how do we engage with ideas without falling prey to this identity crisis and hullabaloo that that is empty for many of it and so easy to pick up when we don't really carry the weight of it. Yeah. So, you know, we won this battle. We won that battle, right? Yeah. Uh, without even thinking about what you've won and what the consequences or who's are. Gonna, yeah, who's going to – yeah, who's going to pay? Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> one thing I wanted to mention about sort of the way this, this has evolved in, in Florida with this legislation, um, in 2021 – uh, there was HB, House, House Bill 233, and you remember this, yeah. Intellectual and Viewpoint Diversity Bill. So this was sort of the I first, mean, <laughs> this was, the, you know, the first launching of the attack, right? This was the, the beginning of the attack. And uh, I believe, I can't remember, I think the person who sponsored this bill might now be, what is he, the uh, head of education or he has, a, he has a role in the DeSantis administration. Anyway. But I just want to read something about this because I show this to my students and I say, you know, this was motivated. This intellectual viewpoint diversity bill was motivated by the assumption uh, that conservative voices could not be heard at the university. They were going to be shouted down uh, and that students are snowflakes. Right. And they can't handle it. So we need to encourage uh, intellectual viewpoint diversity. Okay. Unless um, it causes guilt and shame. But go ahead. Well, we're going to move in that direction. <laughs> we're going to move in that direction. But here's the interesting thing. So I'm going to just read the language, okay? So it says, this was June 2021. Also, a part of this bill was that there would be a survey given to faculty and students. Uh, that didn't go anywhere because nobody filled it out, right? But anyway, so here is the way um, they wanted universities to think. <clears throat> now, again, remember, this is motivated by a concern that conservative voices are not sufficiently represented, and they should be, and they shouldn't be shut down. So here's the language. Authorizing the State Board of Education to adopt rules, prohibiting the State Board of Education and the Board of Governors, respectively, from shielding certain students, faculty, or staff from certain speech. Then they go on to say, for the purposes of this subsection, the term intellectual freedom and viewpoint diversity means the exposure of students and the encouragement of students' exploration of a variety of ideological and political perspectives. Two, shield means to limit students' access to or observation of ideas and opinions they may find uncomfortable, unwelcome, disagreeable, or offensive. Now, I show this to my students and I say, I know what the motivation was for this legislation, but I actually agree with this part. I'm going to practice this. Thank you very much. Yes. Florida State Legislature, Republicans, for giving me a statement I can show my students so that I can introduce my radical political ideas in an open forum. And, you know, I should be able to do You shouldn't be shielded. OK. Even if you feel, quote, uncomfortable, unwelcome, disagreeable or offensive. What happened to that? Yeah, what did happen to I mean I think all of us especially people who grew up in in you know the 70s and uh, 60s and 70s that this idea of encountering dangerous ideas, right? right. That was a big theme. We get That know, was the lure. Right? Right? <laughs> we're we're going back to that um was there some recognition that uh on the part of you know, the, the, the Florida legislature, that maybe that backfired? 
It, it didn't accomplish or, their real goal. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, because their real goal isn't diversity. No, the real goal. It's really uniformity. Right. And in some sense, it's reinforcing the indoctrination that the students have received before they came to the university, for the most part, yeah. right? Yeah. Like civics. They're pushing the civics. Yeah. Civics. I mean, think <laughs> about high school civics. Oh, it was horrible, right? I, uh, I don't even remember. And, I don't and, think I, I don't think I was awake during that and, period. And let's think about, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, the, the elite feel threatened, right? Like the times are changing. Consciousness is, is raised in certain levels. People are becoming, if you want to use the term, woke, right? Well, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of consciousness raising as well. And I grew up in uh, Miami uh, in the state of Florida. And they had a course you had to take uh, required in 12th grade. And the course was titled... Americanism versus communism. Oh, wow. Okay? Oh, wow. So we saw this before. In other words, they were concerned about, there was a lot of radicalization in the 60s and 70s, in, in some ways much more than today, or at least it, it, ta- it took a different form then. So we were required to take this, and the author of the text in the class I took, and at that time, maybe the term didn't exist, but I was woke. Yeah. Okay? And I gave the professor a hard time in that class. The textbook was written by none other than J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Classic stuff. Yeah. And you can ask anyone my age. Propaganda. Who grew up in Florida, and they will tell, oh, yeah, Americanism versus communism. So this is what is going on. They are trying to intervene in the educational system in order to produce sheep. Yeah. People who will believe... Um, I, there was even some terminology used, I think yesterday, something about liberties and constitutionalism or something like that. That's all they need to understand about American society. So, so getting parents involved, um, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. I sure mean, it is. Uh, because currently what that means, and I'm not talking about it at the college level now, I'm talking about it at the uh, K, right. through, K through 12. Um, you know, it's not like they want to make sure that the students are, you know— uh, you know, the the methods of teaching, uh, providing, you know, critical thinking skills. They're talking about content, right? Yeah, and, and the Moms for Liberty, Liberty, okay, the Moms <sighs> for Liberty. So, you know, what you have is a small, sometimes they call it the heckler's veto, right? Right. Like a small group, very loud, very organized, uh, shaping, uh, demanding uh, what should be done in public school. I don't think, look— when I was in high school, the last thing I would have wanted is for my um, friends' religious conservative parents to have anything to do right. with the admin- with the curriculum I was being exposed or what I was going to read in these classes. So, you know, public school is public for a reason, okay, uh, in the sense that it doesn't mean that the parents can decide what happens in a classroom. It means that there has been some agreement about the nature of learning and understanding different topics and you leave that, you, you at least trust the institution. So, you know, they, they want their, ki- their kids to be going to a parochial school is really right. what they would like to do. But, you know, right. so they'll convert the – and this is really what's happening, right? They're converting the public institutions into something yeah. that – And that's, um, that's where you've got to get everybody in there. That's right. You've got to get all those parents, yeah, not just the heckler's lo- veto right. yeah. crowd. The silent majority. Yeah. I, I hate to, to use Nixon's yep. term, but I think there's a silent there majority is. that doesn't – subscribe to any of this. Well, I mean, it was last week. Wasn't it last week where uh, elementary and high school 
teachers were having books. to cover up yeah. their books on the shelves in their room. You know that the book burning, <laughs> book banning right. um, has n- almost never worked. Right? It only brings attention to the very text they want right. to eliminate. And you know, how do we use that, or or is it already working in favor? of those uh, books that, you know, we should just sit back and how much to react is, I guess, what I'm asking. On the one hand, I would love to see, you know, more involvement if you could control it, which I understand is a problem. On the other hand, you know, there are there's a lot of publicity being brought to Zora Neale Hurston, for example. Right, right. I'm thrilled people might go find that. We try to get it out of the library, the public library. It's, you know, backed up now. So, you know. Right, the unintended consequences. Yeah. The unintended which, which, consequences. Which is, which is How do good. we use those? Yeah, I mean, when people know that they're being denied something, they want it even more, right? So, and, you know, I'd like to see a group like, Moms for Liberty emerge sort of on the other end of the spectrum, at least in terms of advocating for the, you know, for those people who have been hired by the schools, teachers and librarians to make the decisions. Okay, they were hired as professionals, just like we were hired as professionals, as faculty. I'd like to say maybe something about that in a moment. Um, But when you move it to the um, university level, uh, I really think parents need to be even more concerned about what's happening at the higher education level because the reputation now of Florida's uh, public education system, uh, higher education system, um, the reputation uh, has been sharply, sharply diminished. And, you know, I share all of these things with my students. I want them to know what's going on in the state. And I say, sometimes I talk about the three R's. And one is I, I say recruitment. Uh, you know, we have to recruit faculty at the universities in the state, and it's hard to recruit good faculty. They're not going to come. This is not going to be their first choice. Let's put it that way. The job market is difficult. Some people take the job they get, but this is not going to be at the top. But nobody wants to come, not even a conservative, wants to come to a state where they see that the uh, state government is intervening and encroaching on the academic freedom and the autonomy of the institution. So recruitment. Um, retention, same thing. Some of the best faculty in Florida will be, if they haven't already, uh, have left or are being poached, so to speak, from other institutions that say, you're a great researcher, you're in the state of Florida, we see what's happening. If you're interested, we have a position. And then the last is just reputation. And this is the one I try to emphasize with the students. I say, at some point, I don't know how people are going to interpret a degree coming out of uh, Florida, uh, you know, state university institutions, if this continues, if this really sinks deep uh, into everything that's happening at the institution. I think people are going to look at your, you know, applications, say, oh, you went to a university in Florida. Isn't that where they banned yeah. this or banned that? Or, Especially, it just how doesn't about if you're help. coming out of high school? And you, you're, what do we rank, 47th in the country, something like that? We're way down in, you know, the 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 our students' success and our educational degree. How about getting into college right. when you're coming out of a, a public high school from Florida? That's, <laughs> you're going to be limited there, too, at an even earlier stage. So it's not an inconsequential 
um, reality for people. And parents And that's what I think parents would be concerned about, exactly, to get back to And we have to make that uh, part of the dialogue. Like, what are we doing to help them get into the colleges they want to, right? This might be a good moment. I'm trying to get us there to talk about wokeness because what we're discussing is part of being woke. Um, And my understanding is that wokeness comes out of the African-American community historically and was a word that was used kind of like, be careful, pay attention. You're going into a situation that is, you know, problematic. You know, this this that's a sun sundown town. That's right. Uh, so that woke in in its vernacular usage was pay attention, which how you could be anti pay attention is a little bit strange. I know words evolve, so I get that yeah, it has yeah. more than its original meaning. And it's now a stand-in for a kind of political correctness. But I wonder how you see that word or how it's used. Or... Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, the origin of the word as you described, or at least originally the way it was used. Uh, and in some ways, um, that's not far from the way students think about it. And I'll share uh, some responses from students in a minute. Um, from DeSantis's view... Um, he probably views uh, sort of wokeness as a kind of consciousness uh, which is going to question the system in certain ways, be more aware of the fact that we live in a system where uh, there is inequality, uh, there is oppression, uh, there is racial oppression because, you know, the woke movement uh, got a big stimulus from Black Lives Matter. And um, they don't like people to think that way, right? That, that's really what it comes down to. It's, it's potentially dangerous uh, from the perspective of those in power uh, because it begins to sort of, you know, it, it sort of goes at this myth, right? Like the myths of the way the society works and it's fair and equal opportunity and we live in a democracy. Um, now you have this kind of awareness, right? So one thing I asked my students at the very beginning of the semester before I even started talking about this is I just wanted to get what was their view? of this term, and I'm just going to share a few of the responses, which I think are representative. Um, so I, in my intro class, they, they uh, fill out responses to questions I pose, the kind of open-ended questions during the class time, and then they turn these cards in at the end. So I decided one day I would just have these would be the questions. Um, so what does it mean to you to be woke? And I put woke in, in quotes. Uh, or what is meant by wokeness. <clears throat> and let me just read, and I have like 77 of these right responses. The students took this seriously, uh, which I always appreciate, because sometimes you think, oh, yeah. well, you know, I'll just write anything and throw the card in, and I'll get a 10. No, they, they took this seriously. And um, there's some good data here. <laughs> this is good qualitative data. Somebody could do something with this. But anyway, so here here's... Here's, to be woke means to be open-minded in regards to the world's current issues. It also means to have room for changes within one's view along with their beliefs. From another student, from my understanding, the term woke uh, derives from and that derives from and is used to describe someone who is aware of relevant trending societal issues, particularly about racial discrimination and equality. 
Woke is to be in touch with what is going on in the world today. It's a third student. Fourth student. To me, being woke means you are very up to date on certain political and cultural concepts. Being woke also means you're very educated on what new things are happening and new trends. There was not one response among these 70 students that thought woke or wokeness meant that you had some politically correct uh, agenda. Uh, it was remarkable. Yeah, um, that to, is, to a large extent, there was almost a naivete about it. It was sort of like they just took the word and said, well, yeah, I mean, woke means just to be woke, uh, alert, uh, you know, yeah. of what's going on around you. So that really is close to that original context or usage of that word. That is very encouraging. I, can I push back a second yeah. on on the way you um, – presented uh, DeSantis's uh, position because I don't I'm not sure he would he would say it that way and I can't, I don't want to put words yeah. into your mouth yeah. exactly how you said it but is the concern and I'll tell you where my thinking comes from on this is the concern really that there's a disproportional emphasis on African-American contributions, uh, the role of African-American economic woes, um, that we've we've, um, misrepresented how significant these things are. Is that at the root of it? And the reason I ask it that way is I spoke to Woody Holton a couple of, I guess it was probably a year ago, who's a historian out of, um, he's at the University of South Carolina now, and he worked with the 1619 Project, which was so, it was really fascinating to talk to him about what was going on. And um, it seemed to me at the time, and it's kind of stuck with me, the way in which the these ideas are now being presented as um, something we should look at with new eyes. And in changing that perspective, it seems like there's a fear that there that new perspective gives us an imbalance. So that as if you can't talk about Thomas Jefferson and uh, I don't know Frederick Douglass, and keep there's no con, uh, 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 dissonance, right. right? There's no, there's none, no dissonance actually in talking about these two figures at the same time. Um, but that seems to me the fear that's underlying this. That it's like somehow, if we teach the 1619 project, we're never going to talk about George Washington again, and that is irrational to my mind. I mean, that, that you think one is just going to swamp the other. You know, talk about women's rights, and suddenly white males will n- will never get another job. Right there. So, uh, is that what's going on? Is I well, mean now now that you put it that way, that's that's interesting. I think there's no question about the racial uh, dimension to all of what uh, DeSantis is doing. So, I guess what I would say is um, he's using the racial dog whistle as a leverage point against the expansion of consciousness. Right. 
because one leads to the other. In other words, the more you sort of know about American history in relationship to race relations, okay? Let's just put it that way. Uh, the more you begin to understand the problematic aspects of the claims of American exceptionalism. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. um, if he just goes after the <clears throat> challenge to American exceptionalism, it's not as powerful as doing it via race for white voters, right? So it sort of has a double purpose. I'd never really thought about it that way until you asked the question. Um, yeah. But if it, I had to, like, write about it now, uh, I would try to combine those two things in, in a more articulate way than right. I described it. Yeah, well, but, me too. But yeah, but it's a, it's like an entry point It's it's into a, going after what's happening in education in a way that seems legitimate to a large number of people uh, in the state um, who, you know— uh, don't think certain ideas should be presented which might give whites the impression. That, <laughs> I mean, you know, when we talk it's, about, they always talk about like no individual in the class should feel. And, and the thing is, you know, when we talk, first of all, if we eliminated the stuff they want us to eliminate, we would have to shut down the sociology. I hate this. Maybe I shouldn't say that, right? But the thing is, we don't talk about it at the end of it. We don't talk about it, though. We talk about it systemically. Right. Right? We talk about it structurally. Right. So when we talk about it, it's not like you and you and you and you need to know. That has nothing to no. do with it. No. Okay? Um, I, I think one of the best texts that I, I used in class is The Color of Law. Um, and his approach to looking at race from that institutional dimension and understanding the way in which government, not not just individuals, right. but that the government became and was party to um, the segregation and the oppression of the black community um, and women. And the, the idea of women-owned businesses was Talk about a cancel culture, right. right? I mean, the original cancel culture was around minorities, um, and and that just became ingrained in the banking system. It became ingrained in uh, city planning. It became certainly housing, right? Your new yeah, your new zoning zoning. Um, I mean, the redlining is an interesting idea to try to unpack. In part because it seems so – it looks like my sewing basket with all the thread is, you know, knotted and intertwined and trying to pull apart each strand and who's doing what to create a system wherein a certain people are left out, right. pushed right. aside um, and covered up. And Flint, Michigan – with the water problem and trying to untangle where the pipes got so corroded that they, you know, you got to look deep right. um, and pull those threads and some of them break and it's just a mess. It's, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the color of law because when I talk to my students about like what is critical race theory or, you know, where did it, what, what's the origins of critical race theory? And I usually say there's two origins, and one is critical legal studies, which essentially is what the color of law is about. Yeah. And the contribution there is that you can have institutions that seem to, you know, 
be relatively equitable in terms of formally how they are supposed to provide services or how they're organized, but in the day-to-day operation of these institutions. Okay, this is what we mean by institutional racism or um, uh, it, from the way they operate day-to-day, they disproportionately negatively impact certain groups, okay? It's not because people think a certain way, okay? We try to get away from, like, well, they're racists. That's why it turns... No, the yeah. way the institution operates fundamentally produces unequal outcomes. That's a structural, systemic, institutional explanation. That's a fundamental part of critical race theory. That's one of... I, on the other side, I talk about... Um, radical feminism, and there you're talking about, well, you know, women and men are equal in the face of the law, uh, but there's patriarchy, right? So there's the ideological part, and there's the institutional part, right? And those two things come together. This is just my way of thinking about the rise of critical race theory. Yeah. Um, so a big part of it uh, comes out of exactly what you're describing um, in the uh, color of law. Right. It's a great, it's a great sort of outline and very readable, you know, it's very accessible language. Um, well, th- there's so much more for us to talk about, but I think we're, we're probably are at a natural stopping <laughs> point. But will you come back? Yes. And we can talk about some more of this stuff. And We'd love to. Um, yeah, we, we touched on a lot of things. Maybe we can go more in depth at some point, but I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you coming and sharing ideas with us. Thanks for inviting me. I enjoy the conversation. Yeah, me, me too.